You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to NBDA's Bicycle Retail Radio. My name is Chad Picard. I own a few bike stores up in South Dakota, and I serve on the NBDA board. When I found out who our next guest was going to be on the podcast, I basically begged Heather, our normal host, to let me be the host. And I promised her I'd keep my cool during the interview. Please welcome my all-time favorite cyclist, Hans Ray. All right. Thank thank you. Yeah. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm very excited to have you. How are you doing? It's it's early 2022. Has it started out well? Yeah, it has started out well. I'm in California where I've been living for forever, but I'm just finalizing my last adventure project film, you know, which is going to come out very soon, Slater Bay. It was an urban adventure in San Francisco and it has, has a lot of really cool stuff in it. And we have a deadline to beat for TV distribution internationally, and it's literally was today. <laughs> and now there's a few last-minute changes that need to be fixed. And then hopefully we can release the soon and before long online and in all the bike media and all that. I look forward to seeing that. So where will people be able to go to see that when it is released? I'm going to release it on YouTube, but it will okay. be on a lot of different streaming platforms like Fuel TV or Outside or... It's going to be on different TV programs like Transworld Sports or World of Free Sports. But the easiest thing is YouTube. And the story is also published in magazines, which we still cater to as well. And it's going to be published in over 18 magazines worldwide. You know, they usually do a big feature story using a lot of photos. And that's already in progress as well. Exciting. And how you've been filming that for how long? How long has that project taken you to complete? Well, it's there's a lot of planning and stuff. The trips itself, once you film them, it's usually only six days or so. It's usually the it's a five-day traverse of these big cities. What I've been doing is these urban adventures. And an urban adventure is basically I pick these special big cities that have incredible nature surrounding them. And we did one in Los Angeles, one in Hong Kong, one in Napoli, and the latest one was in San Francisco. So this first stage, for example, just to give you a little taste of it, was in Maureen County, and we met up with the old clunkers and did actually repack with them. And then Joe Breeze and Charlie Kelly and those guys, they took us into the Museum Hall of Fame there. And then like Brad Tippy joined me on the whole trip. He was with me. And then the next day, we did an urban stage through San Francisco, and there's so much green spaces and little trails and stuff. But then there's also the famous historic landmarks and buildings and all the you know the stuff that one needs to see when they go there like Lombard Street or Fisherman's Wharf and then on the following day we did a big stage for Mount Diablo in the East Bay and rode all the way over to the Oakland Bay Bridge and then we had another urban stage where we did the other half of San Francisco including a really cool sequence with some of those wheelie kits and all that And on the last day, we were actually joined by the junior downhill world champion, Jackson Goldstone. And we rode down in Pacifica. And it was kind of cool to have the old generation at the beginning of the film and then the young one. So anyway, that's the synopsis. Yeah, I love that you, for us older riders, the clunkers and the nostalgia that that brings. And speaking of that, you came to the States in the 80s. And I think I remember hearing that when you originally came, your plan was to come just a couple months and then head back. How did that go for you? That didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. So th- 
which is great. It worked out for some of us that follow you. For some of our listeners, I actually talked to a guy in the shop today in one of my stores. He didn't know who you were. So give me like the three minute Wikipedia read of who Hans Ray is. Like if you had to describe yourself to someone, how would you do it? It's so hard. I never know when people ask me, what do you do for a living? You know, it's yeah. like, but I've basically been a professional mountain biker now for 35 years. I'm a former trials biking world champion turned into extreme mountain biker slash free rider and eventually became this adventure mountain biker. And I've been kind of in the sport on the forefront professional for all these years. I mean, I would have never saw it when I came to the States, like with two months in mind for a visit, I was 20 and I was supposed to go back to university and all that. And then I always added another year and another year, but Man, I would have never dreamt in my wildest dreams that I'm still doing this professionally at 55. Yeah. And dare we say, maybe the first cycling influencer in the States? I mean, you were putting out videos. Uh, your first video that I remember, Hans Noe Ray, I swear I wore out a couple of VCRs watching that. Thank goodness it's on YouTube. I actually watched it the other day. Just as a reminder. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. What's that been like? I mean, you've got video of you. Well, the, yeah, you. Yeah. You, it is kind of true because initially in the early 90s, when mountain biking started to boom, it was all about racing, stopwatches, Lycra, training, cross country and downhill mainly. Trials was more like the sideshow. But I found <laughs> a way to create a career outside of racing. And, and one of those years, like Richard Long, the late owner of GT Bicycle, said to me around, this was 91, 92, he said, Hans, it's so difficult to explain people what you can do on a bike. Why don't we make one of those videos? And that was something that didn't exist until then. And we did this video and it really, like you said, like people loved it. They ate them up and they spread all over the world. And, and it was the timing, you know, like there was no internet yet. There was no, hardly any biking stuff on TV. People were starving for it. Oh, and, yeah. And like, I mean, the bloke you talk to from, you know, who doesn't know who I am, he's not to blame. There's a lot of people don't know that, but you can maybe explain to him what YouTube was to Danny McCaskill was probably VHS to me, you know, and I started doing, creating these jobs outside of racing or a, a job for myself and started to tap into a whole different culture of our sport and a different kind of rider, you know, on top of that. So yeah, that's maybe it in a nutshell. <laughs> and I think what I kind of loved about it is uh, one of your earlier videos, there's just a group of you guys. I think, is it the rats that you used to ride with? Yeah, uh, the Laguna rats is one of the, yeah. it, with, a, with a D as in rat, radical. Oh, okay. And yeah. they are one of the original bike clubs in the United States. They're actually in the Hall of Fame for that matter. And I became associated with them right away when I came over. And they actually introduced me to mountain biking and made me a real mountain biker. And if you believe it or not, this club still rides every Wednesday night. And they've been doing this now for about 40 years. So it's pretty nice. cool. Yeah, yeah, that is very cool. What a great group. And I, having ridden with other people doing trial stuff, there's a bit of a community like, oh, no, don't do it that way. Let me show you how to do it. And just a lot of encouragement. It's kind of the, today it would be sessioning a section of jump track or something like that. But yeah, that aspect of trials I've always really loved. So trials, it's not a household sport that people think of, but anybody that's mountain biking today can probably contribute some of their skills to it. Would you agree or disagree? You look at, you know, we go from you already mentioned original racing was Lycra and timers and the original Norba 
competition. It was three disciplines, right? Downhill, cross country, and then was trials the third? Trials was one of them. Yeah. You know, and you did, everybody had to do everything on the same bike. And then the trials was the one part where it became a bit technical because the cross country races were very basic and the downhill courses even were initially just on fire roads. They weren't even on single track or they weren't crazy or gnarly like we know them now. And the trials guys were always a bit the guys who could entertain the crowd because everybody could watch it all. The riders wouldn't disappear in the forest, you know, for half an hour. They could follow the action and it was kind of fun and playful and entertainment. And so, yeah, so that's how the whole thing kind of evolved. And yes, the trials riders, especially they came to the point when I wanted to show my skills outside of the competitions. And that's when I started doing these extreme biking videos. I actually would watch the extreme skiers at the time, you know, Glenn Blake, the guy with the Mohawk or or Scott Schmidt. They were these extreme skiers hucking off cliffs. And I was like, man, this is cool. I want to do the same on a bike. I want to be an extreme mountain biker. And this was five years before the word free ride was even coined. So I started doing these extreme biking things and write down steep stuff and write things that people thought were unrideable. And eventually, yeah, that inspired a whole group of other riders to do that stuff. You know, who weren't necessarily into racing or training. They wanted to have fun, play around, pull some wheelies, do some jumps. And yeah, so, I mean, now look at, a lot of the mountain biking, especially online, is all these kids doing tricks and jibbing and doing stuff, you know. And I guess it had to start somewhere. So <laughs> you started it. Perfect. I was one of them. Yeah. I was one of the guys. Was there anybody that was a cyclist that was an influencer that was pushing you or that you were seeing them do crazy things and you said, I'm going to do it crazier? Who did you look up to or who did, I mean, other than the skiers, was there anybody on two wheels? Well, I looked up to a lot of different, like like you say, different sports, but also different athletes. Some of them was my peers I would train with and we learn and push each other. And then like growing up in Germany, you know, trials is a European sport Mm -hmm. and that's what I did. But we were aware of the BMX scene that was happening in America. And every once in a while, we got to see one of the magazines like BMX Action or so and see these pictures with these guys with these rad bikes and uniforms and driving Porsches and making six-figure salaries. I mean, we were all amateurs in Europe and couldn't even comprehend that. And I followed that scene quite a bit. And I was lucky enough when I first came over, I got thrown right in the middle of all that. And I got to meet a lot of these heroes and people that I looked up from too. And even though it was a different sport, I kind of try to learn from what they had done right and also what they had done wrong in their careers and kind of apply it to my situation and my career. And so there was a lot of people I've been influenced by, you know, that the list goes on and it continues. And the young generation nowadays, you know, inspire me. They give me, you know, but at the same time, you know, like, I would always look up to somebody like John Tomac back in the old days or guys from motorcycle disciplines or all different sports. And then kind of that's how I got inspired. Awesome. John Tomac, another one of my favorites. Do you keep in touch with some of the racers from back then? Yeah, some of them. Okay. I Sometimes you run into them or you visit them or some of them are still active. Others kind of have checked out, you know, but like... 
I did a little road trip to Colorado during the pandemic a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. And I went to see Greg Herbold, for example, oh, you nice. know, and, yeah. and then like other guys from that era, like Thomas Frischnecht, they're still in the business managing teams and stuff. So you see them at events or trade shows sure. or go riding. And I'm kind of lucky here where I live in Laguna Beach. A lot of people come here to train or hang out or visit other bike industries, companies, you know, who are in the mm -hmm. area, in the especially in the winter. So this place is full of pro riders all the time. Yeah. yeah, we used to have a couple of industry events that would happen out there, which was always fun to get out there. Yeah. So obviously things have changed in our industry. We've gone from, you know, we had basically road bikes and then the mountain bikes came in the mid late 80s, early 90s. We've had a couple different bottom bracket standards, a couple different wheel sizes. What component do you feel has improved over the years that's allowed maybe more extreme riding or just more durable? Like, what, What's your favorite parts on a bike? Well, the bikes have come a long way in every single aspect, you know, and I don't know. I mean, obviously suspension and hydraulic brakes and all that stuff has come a long way. The materials we're using, but for me, kind of one of the best inventions or, or at least aftermarket products was the dropper post. I think that was such a cool and necessary thing to have. And nowadays, I mean, I think I'm not alone saying I couldn't ride a bike anymore without one, you know, or I didn't want to ride one at least. And so that was a pretty cool invention. Other times things are a bit oversought or over-engineered or people just try to reinvent the wheel, making it sometimes more square than round, which is not necessarily better. So, but like the one trend, for example, that I don't get right now is the trend of, you know how it's been in the bike industry forever. You pay like a few hundred dollars to save a few grams of weight mm -hmm. on your bike. And now everybody Guilty. like <laughs> sticks their tools and their spare parts on their bike and on their frame. And I think it's such a mess. It's like, get a bloody little backpack and have everything together. And then no matter which of your bikes you ride, you have it. But to have all these things stuck in your frame and sometimes they rattle and sometimes you lose them and sometimes you forget to switch them over, that's a trend I haven't jumped onto. I am guilty. I've got bags all over the place from at work to at home and I don't know what tools and what. And I know I'm going to well, grab the I, wrong bag with the wrong tube or wrong tools or what have you. So how do you transport like where you live? It's cold. How do you transport like a, a warmer piece of clothes along with, you know, some food if you go on a longer ride? Not an endurance rider, but we do a New Year's Day ride every year. It's been this year, I think it was six or seven below zero, but we don't go that far. But if we do, you know, if we go for an hour or hour and a half in, you know, 10 degree weather, probably not going to take any food, you know, right. water. We will do sometimes either a camelback that's insulated with an insulated tube. Otherwise you got to store your bottle upside down and you sometimes put a little, maybe a little bit of alcohol in it <laughs> to keep it from freezing. So there's some tricks, but really you're just getting out there and riding hour and a half, two hours, and you're just taking care of your liquids and your food before. Yeah, on a short ride, you can get yeah. away with less spare parts, especially yeah. if you have your friends carry all the spare parts. Yeah. <laughs> Cell phones. Then we call someone if there's a breakdown, but it, not too many breakdowns. Uber, so, can you pick me up at yeah. the second tree or to the right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you have those 20 years ago when you were in uh, riding up and down waterfalls? So you have a nonprofit. We're going to continue to talk about bikes. Wheels for Life is your nonprofit. Tell me about that. Just a quick description. Well, Wheels for Life is a nonprofit charity that gives bicycles to people in developing countries, people in need of transportation. 
So we deal a lot with people like, you know, like in Africa or in Asia and poorer countries in the world. And these people, they often lack mobility. And if you have mobility, you can get around. I mean, they live in remote villages just to get to school. Sometimes it's 10 or 15 miles walk or fetching their drinking water. It might be only a mile, but carry a bucket of like, you know, like of drinking water a mile, you know, and do that on a daily basis, you know. So, and often there's no public transportation or if there is a bus, these people can't afford it because their income is so low. So we provide these kind of people, it's often school children, healthcare workers and farmers who use the bike to literally put all their goods on the bike and bring it to the market. And that way they can sell it and make an income and get a little bit ahead in life and make their life that much sweeter. And we are, everybody in our organization works voluntarily. It's basically my wife, Carmen and I, who do most of the work. And we've given away over 15,000 bikes in wow. 33 or four countries. And yeah, it's a nice thing. And I always said, you know, the sport has been so good to me. I've been now a pro for 35 years. This year is my 35th anniversary with GT bicycles. I've been my whole career with them. And I always said, as long as I can afford to do such a charitable thing on the side, I will do it. And, you know, and I'm doing it. So that's kind of my way of giving a little bit something back to the world of bikes. Yeah. And the bikes that you're giving, I assume they're not two niners with dropper posts and, no. you know, what are they, uh, something specially made or, or uh, can, I, actually, can, I, I, can I buy and contribute or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the best way to contribute is by giving me money. And then I go and buy the bike for the people because we buy them locally in the countries where we give them away. It makes logistics very easy. No shipping, no custom, no corruption, no problem finding spare parts. So we buy the bikes locally. There's a lot of different organizations who have similar causes than we do. And they, some of them collect used bikes or so. We are not in the position. We don't have the network to collect them, repair them. And then paying for a container to be shipped into wh wherever it needs to be. So we buy the bikes locally. And the best way to support us is, yeah, by really donating. And then we have projects all over the world. And we buy the bikes there for the people. And our local project leaders help us identify the people who need the bike the most and would appreciate it the most. And yeah, and we have pretty much a very good track record. Not only are we super pure and we have hardly any overhead because nobody gets paid. I even pay my own flights when I ever go visit a project. But, you know, we also know where every single bike went. We're not just dropping off. Here's another 250 bikes. Hopefully they end in the right hands. No, we know I can give you a name. And a little bio of pretty much 15,000 people. So, so we're taking it seriously. What's some of the feedback you get from the people that get the bikes? Well, it's amazing sometimes the stories you hear, you know, like, I mean, in some cases, they literally saved lives, you know, like, I remember one time we delivered an ambulance bike in, in Malawi, we, we give bikes with a trailer that serves as an ambulance where the patient <laughs> lays in and they literally at the ceremony, they got a call when they received the bikes from us. And they had to rush and they went and saved somebody's life and rushed into the nearest clinic or kids that go to school. You know, often the kids, like I said, they walk long distances and then they often come late or by the time they get back home, it's too dark outside already and they don't have electricity in their huts. So they don't do the homework. 
But when these people have a bike, they're all of a sudden punctual at school, they're motivated, then they go to secondary school. And the next thing is some of them go to university and there's some kids that we give them a bike to that ended up being doctors and really managed to climb out of this vicious cycle of poverty, you know, and get a little bit ahead of life with in form of having transportation. Love it. Yeah, it's a nice thing. Check it out. Wheelsforlife.org. So yeah, I love that program. Giving, you know, creating, I mean, the bike itself is a tool, but it's creating more time, which certainly creates more opportunity for these children and people in other countries, or in some cases, it saves their life. That's amazing. So you travel all over the world. We'll get into some of the places that you've gone. But as you travel, when I go to a town, first thing I look, where are the bike stores and what are the bike stores and what do they sell? And so you've been to bike stores all over the country. What are some of the differences between bike stores in Europe and bike stores in the States or maybe other parts of the world? It's hard to say. There's cool bike shops on both sides of the pond and bike shops have changed a lot over the years. I mean, we talked briefly about it. Like when I first started my career, I did a lot of trials demonstrations at bike shops. That was a way to, for them to get marketing going for, you know, they would also hire the freestyle kids, the BMX riders, and the whole town would come together and kids would get inspired to start riding bikes and they built dirt jumps and they started a community. And we did that at a lot of bike shops, these live appearances, and I did them also internationally. Distributors would invite me to Ecuador or to Australia where, where never American bike rider had been because at the time there was no races in those countries. But I could go there and I could do a demonstration and do something. And so in the old days, bike shops did those kind of promotions. And nowadays things have changed with the internet. But I think important is the coolest bike shops are always the ones who are really proactive and involve the community and do stuff. And nowadays you can do that to a degree online. In the older days, it was a bit more the live events, which I think there's still a place for them, you know, like organizing a talk or a meet and greet with somebody or, you know, organizing clinics and stuff. What I always think is cool, and I've seen it also in, in Europe and here, shops that have like rides, you know, shop rides, you know, like once a week or on the weekends, and that always works. Yeah, I mean, it all drifted a bit away from the mom and pop shops to more like bigger chains. Some of these like uh, bike shops are nowadays the size of supermarkets, you know, and you find that in Europe and here. And of course, the e-bike thing has changed all that, that whole landscape, you know. And not only has it been a great opportunity for many bike shops to tap into that market, but at the same time, there's also competition now. There's a new kind of shop opening up that wasn't around before or motorsports or motorcycle people start selling bikes or car people even. So, but yeah, there's some really sweet bike shops all over the world. What does Ride It Daily Extended Service do for your customers? It protects and maintains their bikes. What does Ride It Daily Extended Service do for you? It pays you your shop rate for warranty and extended service claims. Why wouldn't you sign up for Ride It Daily Extended Service? It's only available to NBDA members, and you can find out more about rides at nbda.com. You mentioned e-bikes. Let's talk about e-bikes. Yeah, let's talk about it. Are they any fun at all? They are. They are. <laughs> Twist my arm. Yeah. They open up a whole new possibility, you know. And I always say it's not black and white. You don't have to decide 
between an e-bike and a regular bike. I ride both of my bikes. As a matter of fact, when this is over, I'm going to, before it gets dark, I'm going to go out and ride my regular bike, you know, this afternoon. But, you know, it's like I always say, it's like cross-country skiing and alpine skiing. You can do both. You don't have to decide between one or the other. And I think that's how it is with e-bikes. And for me, where I live here, we have pretty steep hills. And there's some pretty gnarly widow makers that on a normal bike, hardly anybody can do. And on an e-bike, all of a sudden, it's a whole new challenge to climb these technical mountains. And you can go further and you can also ride your ride habits. You know, all of a sudden, you ride with people who are not as fit as you are or vice versa, you know, and you can explore stuff that is, you know, like further out, you know, if you have enough battery power, but it's just new opportunities. And as much some people might still not happy with it, I think they're here to stay. So I think the big challenge is for us is the legislation, you know, like we have those class one, two and threes. And I'm really only for the class one pedal assist, low speed e-bikes. And the problem is those little fast class two and three bikes that even the 14 year old kids ride around on the streets right now everywhere without even knowing the traffic rules. But they slowly start coming onto the trails. And that is asking for troubles. We need to educate everybody, teach people etiquette, and also teach people the difference between one of those class one bikes or the other faster kind. Sure. And with any new technology, there's always that, you know, someone not understanding it. And we have a 29 mile paved trail around our city here. And yeah, the class twos and class threes are out there. And the, even the out of class DIY bikes that go 40 miles an hour are yeah. out there. And that's pretty crazy when you're on a facility where you expect slower speeds. Are you primarily riding e-mountain bikes or do you have a commuter that you're, you zip around on? Or I started out with, <laughs> my first e-bike I built myself was back in like 2009 or so. I converted okay. one of the GT full suspension bikes with a rear hub motor. And I started using it basically for commuting. I tried it out a few times in the dirt. But nowadays I ride mainly mountain bike and I love it with some of my adventure stuff, but also... The technical writing, like I said, those widow makers. And I don't see a, I'm not a big fan of e-bike racing. I think that's kind of defies the purpose. E-bikes are supposed to be fun. And if you ever try to race an e-bike, you have to outpedal the motor. And that is not yeah. fun. And <laughs> and also, you know, there's that whole gray zone of where people could, you know, like make them faster or modify you know, or them sure. modify stuff. And I feel like racing should be with traditional bikes and e-bikes have their place maybe for certain enduro races maybe you know where you can go up the hill relatively easy and then you race downhill or so or i could see a not a traditional trials competition but i had an idea for an event i called it skills where you have to do these technical sections and you get scored oh, sure. like in golf so there's a place for it but cross-country racing <laughs> no thanks <laughs> have you built up an e-trials bike yet no, and that I don't yeah. really, I feel like. Or would that I be too riding, close to like motorcycle trials? Yeah, like old school trials, you know, like in the modern trials, everybody's hopping around and stuff. And yeah. that's something I wouldn't want to do on an e-bike. But the old school trials, when you had to pedal and use your momentum and your skills and finesse to get up a sure. creek bed or over stuff. And that kind of riding, I love a lot and I like a lot. And that's really fun on the e-bikes too. It's pretty demanding, you know, on your upper body and you feel the weight. And so it's really important to have your timing right and to, you know, like to get it all right. 
So if you had an audience of bike store owners that don't want to carry e-bikes, what would you tell them? Well, it depends how rich they are, if they can afford not to sell them because, you know, they're going to be a big part of the market and it's only going to grow, I think, the share of e-bikes versus regular bikes. And you can be purist about it and you can not like them, but I think they just need to be classified right and they need to be regulated and they and the etiquette needs to be taught and that actually starts often at the bike shops who sell not only the class one bikes but they also sell the two and three and i think they owe it to their customers and also their other customers to educate every new person that comes out on a bike on the trails so they kind of understand a bit of the rules but it's I mean, they've been saying for years, and I might be wrong or not, but if you don't sell e-bikes, you might have a hard time staying in business unless you really niche, you know, but never say never. But I think they're cool. So I'll support them. And I think the technology will go a long ways in the next yeah. 10 years. Well, everybody heard it here first. Hans thinks e-bikes are cool. So we carry them. I absolutely love them. I normally have one in my garage in my quiver of bikes, unless someone else wants it more than I do, then I loan it out. Let's talk about travel. I mean, you're working on this movie project, which you, you talked about a little bit already of some of the places you've been, but you've been to, this is probably going way back, but you've been on a volcano. You went to Kilimanjaro a few years ago. I actually watched your entire travel series. It took me, I don't know, like 10 hours. Really? It probably took you what, like two weeks to film all that? Maybe, maybe three? A lot longer. Uh, okay. What was your favorite trip or what drives you to go to these places? I mean, yeah, Kilimanjaro's, it, with that video was crazy because yeah, uh, that, that was a got that, sick and that was a yeah. good one. Yeah. Like you say, I got pretty lucky to be traveling all over the world to so many places, be it for adventures or be it also for just appearances and trial shows or even races at the time. But I've been yeah over 70 countries and once I started doing these adventure trips, it was often about going to some of these really cool destinations that are really remote and that people had never ridden before or certain traverses or mountains were considered unrideable or certain trails. And I would try to prove them wrong. And, you know, and we always had a kind of a mission on my trips. It wasn't just about riding at some new place. It was about in search of something historical or mysterious or you know, like on the old Inca trail or traversing the Alps on a route that, you know, like that hadn't been done or in the footsteps of Moses in the Sinai Peninsula, you know, and visiting the pyramid on the same time. And you mentioned Kenya and, Kiliman and Tanzania and, and Kilimanjaro. Those were the biggest mountains in Africa. And I did them about five years ago with Danny McCaskill and a German writer. And we summited um, them back to back. I had been on Mount Kenya before, and that's maybe my all-time favorite. But the second time we did it, it was a tough trip. It was kind of acclimatization for Kilimanjaro, which is almost 20,000 feet tall. And then he actually got seasick at altitude <laughs> yeah. and had to be, you know, helied off the mountain. But luckily, he bounced back within literally a day, and he could join us for Kilimanjaro. And that in my opinion, is the Mount Everest for biking. I know people have taken their bikes higher than 20,000 feet, higher than Kilimanjaro, but usually those are just the record-seeking dudes who carry their bike up and down to like 25,000 or 24,000 feet. But Kilimanjaro actually can be ridden if you're a good enough rider. And we were not the first to go up there. 
there was probably a dozen people or so before us who summited. But I'm sure we were the first who wrote basically everything on the way down. And it was cool. And it was tough. It was the toughest thing I've ever done, hands down. How much of it were you able to ride up? Not much. Okay. Partly because it's not that it's steep, but at, as soon as you're at altitude, you have to go much slower than you think you should yeah. go. That's the mistake people go like. They ride at altitude and even the strong guys. And they go like, oh, that's an easy pace. I do that always at home. Yeah, but you don't do it at altitude and you don't do it carrying like a 30 liter backpack and a heavy bike and all that, you know, like, so you have to really take your time, acclimate. And even if there is a, a little hill that I know I could ride it up and it's not too soft the ground, I just walk it and take my time because otherwise chances are you'll hit the wall. So, yeah, just be prepared on those trips. It helps to be good equipped, good prepared, and have a little experience. So we recently hosted a NBDA member networking event in Costa Rica, and it involved 18-mile mountain bike ride to where they were staying, to the cabin they were staying in. What's some of your favorite like bike travel trips? Or maybe even what's a... Like if someone wanted to travel and to do biking and not necessarily Kilimanjaro, but have biking, mountain biking be the focal point of their trip, where should they go? Where's the low hanging fruit to travel and bike at the same time? <laughs> Wherever you're allowed to go these days. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> your back door. <laughs> I, I think the sky is the limit. I mean, there's so many cool places now. I mean, I tell you, it, there's no better time to be a bike rider than now. Because like, you know, like the first 30 years of mountain biking was all about really the technology and the bikes and all those, you know, like the evolution of the parts and materials. But I think the last 20 years have been, it started about 20 years ago and it really, the last 10 years, it was all about how and where we ride the bikes. And there's so many places now that have a biking infrastructure. They have purpose-built trails. They have like skills areas or pump tracks. They have, you know, some of those tourism places have bike-specific hotels and guiding services and rentals and maps and all this stuff is now available and that's kind of cool. And there is places literally all over the world. And what's really cool is, is often it's places that you wouldn't have expected that or you would have never gone to, but then you hear about this place, like there's a place in Tasmania, in Australia, that has... In the middle of nowhere was a little mining town with 250 people. It was there was not there was one pub left in the town, and they not didn't even serve food. And they came in there and they started building trails, and they built some of the best trail network in the world at Blue Derby. And now this this little town is just exploding. Real estate is going to the roof. People come from all over the world. And at the beginning, it was more the hardcore guys. And now it's like full with families and kids and also e-bikes. And there's so many examples from around the world where people built and they create this, you know, initially people thought it was all about the big ski resorts, you know, but often those ski resorts, they were sleeping. In Europe, some of them jumped on it, but others were like, they didn't see the potential. In America, it was even worse. I mean, it took a long time for ski resorts to really build trails. I mean, yes, they would host some races back already in the 80s, but for them to build a bike park would often have to wait another 25 years. And then they finally realized and finally saw the potential. So 
One of my favorite places to get to your question is a town in Italy called Livigno. It's in the Italian Alps. If you look at the map of Switzerland on the very most eastern corner, if you go across the border into Italy, that's where it is. And they had the mountain bike world championships there before. It's a famous town for all kinds of cycling. A lot of the famous passes are there, you know, the road cycling passes like the Stelvio or Gavia Pass or Motirolo or Bernina, they're all there. So all these road teams practice there. They have two bike parks in this town. It's a big hub for touring riders and Transalp riders. In Europe, it's very, these Transalp trips are very popular to traverse the Alps from north to south. And that is a really cool experiment. And a lot of these routes, there's several different routes you can take, but a lot of them go through this town, Livigno. And so I usually spend a bunch of time there, but I really like the variety and I like to go to new places. So I always keep my eye out for new stuff. And like I said at the beginning of this talk, you know, like lately my new interest is these urban adventures where I find these big cities and often they have world-class riding within the city or right on the outskirts and to show the contrast between this urban jungle and then the pristine nature around these cities is kind of a really neat thing to do and it's a great way to actually explore these big cities. Yeah. Have you been down to Bentonville, Arkansas? Oh, yeah. That's one of those places where you think, Arkansas? Yeah. Really? And the infrastructure there is ridiculous. And it was the first time I had been there a couple of months ago and we're driving down a road and there's like a jump track off to the side of the road. I'm like, no way. What is that? It's all over the place. I know. This, it, that place is a really good example. I mean, they've had the luck to get funding that is usually not available to most right. others. But they're setting an example. And with that funding, they can actually show people what is possible. Even if you don't have that same kind of funding, the bottom line is, and what all these successful places, including the guys in Bentonville always say, you build and they will come. Yeah. And that happened everywhere in the world where we had bike parks and stuff. Have you been up to Cuyuna up in Minnesota at all? Yes, long time it, ago. It, it, I, I was it, there for the grand opening, I think. Okay, so we missed each other, just barely. I was there, I think, the week after. Yeah, and that's not a place you would go. <laughs> There's not a big city, yet everybody from this region certainly travels there for the fat biking and then biking in the summer. And it's just, it's beautiful up there. It's absolutely gorgeous. It and, is. And I love the, you know, the integration of, you still have your stunts and trials type stuff for, you know, developing skills and stuff like that. Such a beautiful place. We definitely need more of that. And places like this, the mountain biker is the center of the attention. You know, like go to a place like Aspen and yes, they have mountain bikers and it's cool. But the mountain biker is this little sideshow. It's all about the skiers and the golfers yeah. and the money. And yes, mountain bikers are part of that community. But it's not like a place like Cayuna or Bentonville. It's all about biking and it's, yeah. it's pretty special yeah and definitely worth a visit yeah and with Kayona, it's not just the summer either it's it, you know fat biking is we get this thing called snow i don't know if you've heard of it but it's cold uh, it's and wide, right most and, and the they warn you of yellow snow yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't eat yeah. That, right do not eat the yellow snow do yeah. not but it's just created a new category of biking just get on a bike with super fat tires and pedal out on groomed trails that's exactly what they do in that town Livigno in Italy. I mean, that's a really famous ski resort, really. And they are really famous for all kinds of cycling. But now in the winter, the fat bikes have really taken on. And so often, 
when people go there for a week of skiing, they want to take a rest and do something different one day or so, or the weather might not permit. And just like they have cross-country skiing slopes all over the place as well, they have now these biking routes in the snow with fat tire bikes. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Are you still riding any trials at all? Or do you take out the trials bike every now and then? Yeah, I do. I do uh, not as often as I used to. It is getting, I realize how hard of a workout it is to hop around. I mean, just to do like 20 back wheel hops is like, it's hard. But I try to ride once a week. Okay. And mix it up between all the different rides, you know, like ride a couple of times my e-bike, a couple of times my regular trail bike. I ride, sometimes we do some downhill runs or I do a gravel ride or something like that. So I try to keep it interesting, you know, keep throwing wood in the fire, keep it burning. When you travel, do you always throw in your trials bike at all? Or is that something you always, left at home? but I have a second home in England and okay. over there I, I have another fleet of bikes and I have some trials bikes there too. And over there, trials riding, there's a place nearby where I live where it's really nice for trials riding. So I oh, usually, cool. I usually like bust my bikes out there as well. But I have my own rocks in my front garden here in Laguna. So I, I know. Just, like, <laughs> yeah, I can just go out there. But like I said, if you, you know, like it's a demanding sport and it's really cool yeah. to see the level the young generation has taken this sport. What they do now on the bike is like uncomprehensible sometimes, you know. If you were just, starting out today looking at cycling with all the technology and the ways of riding would trials have showed up on the radar at all or you've gone a different direction with it well i think sometimes it's very circumstantial you know what you have in your neighborhood or what your friends do or what's there and offer so and i'm very glad i grew up around this we had a motorcycle trials club where i was in germany when i grew up and myself and my buddies, we would imitate the motorcycles and start having these home-built, converted Sting Schwinn race and stuff like that and rally choppers and would like start imitating the motorcycles. And nowadays, yes, I mean, it's hard to believe that I wouldn't, you know, think that way. But I think it really comes down to what you have. And that's why we have so many rad kids now everywhere in the world, because they all grow up with having a pump track in their own town. They're having an indoor bike park. They're having that whole infrastructure. And then they have this whole, they get inspired by watching all these videos on YouTube and online, and they can see stuff and they see, wow, it's possible to do a one-hander. Let me try a no-hander. And that's how the evolution always goes, you know, moves ahead and further. And it's amazing how rapidly it went forward. And some of these kids can really be blessed growing up nowadays where they have a Nike club in the town and they have a pump track and they have legal trails and all that stuff, you know, local events, you know, like in the old days, we had a lot of races, but in most places, riders had to travel quite far. You know, there was only one or two local races and then they had to hit the road. And nowadays you can have a Southern California high school league that where you never have to travel much more than 50 miles probably. So yeah, cool. the, the opportunities are crazy. And you've brought up YouTube a couple of times. I destroyed my mom's picnic table because of your videos. Me? Uh, yes. I, yeah. YouTube didn't even exist back then. I, it didn't, but I, ha I had your videos. I, I worked oh, at yeah. a GT shop back then and we were all fans and always, we actually put on a, locally, we put on a trials event in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which was ridiculous, but it was a ton of fun. That's what it's all about. 
Yeah, it is all about that. Back to traveling. What are bike traveling is such a huge thing right now, whether it is close as Bentonville or Cayuna, but is certainly as far away as Italy. What are maybe five or six tips for traveling if you're going to travel by bike or not travel by bike, but travel to bike that people should think of before they travel? Well, obviously, you know, do some research, which is so easy nowadays online. You just put into Google, like in the old days, if we went somewhere, it was so hard to find out any information about, I mean, there was not even mountain biking often in those places. And you had to like rare books between the lines where they maybe mention a trail or what it looks like or where it goes. But anyway, so make your research on that and then travel with some good friends. It's always fun to go, you know, and share the moment. In some cases, it's cool to bring your bike. In other cases, it's actually easier to rent one. Especially with e-bikes nowadays, it's still difficult to travel with the batteries and complicated. And then the e-bikes also weigh a lot. And then to track them around, even, you know, if you fly in and take a train or even if you have a car. So sometimes you can rent such nice bikes now. It's better to go to a local bike shop and rent a bike. And then like, just be prepared, you know, bring all the stuff you might need, especially if you go into a place where there's no biking infrastructure, you know, and go out and adventure. And pack all your gear in a camelback, not on the bike, right? <laughs> in a Deutscher bag. Yeah. In a Deutscher yeah. backpack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, yeah, you can put it on your bike if you want, but let it rattle around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you came to the States in the late 80s. GT has sponsored you this entire time. How awesome is that? Yeah, how awesome is that? And they're celebrating actually this year their 50th anniversary. And it happened to be my 35th year with the yeah. brand. And I've been lucky to have this company. I've seen them, you know, go, go through different ownerships and phases from the mid eighties to then the mountain bike boom and, and to today's stage. And it's an exciting company. We still have really cool products. We're still very global and I'm really happy with that. They also embrace the whole e-bike market, you know, and, yeah. and now we have new ownership. So who knows what yeah. the next chapter will bring, but that's probably in the middle, in the process right now. And I'm kind of on the sidelines on that one. So we'll have to wait and see to, you know, I'm sure it's going to be the next chapter. It's going to be all good. I'm still hoping that they'll bring back the production trials bike back into the lineup. Fingers crossed. I know. I know. It's a cool thing as much as it's a niche thing. These things also, sometimes they create a hardcore group or they yeah. make an image for the brand. And it's funny, we talked about influencing. I just posted something two days ago about GT being 50 years. And I asked people, yeah. write me down your experience. Or, you know, if you ever owned the GT, yeah. write a short comment. And between Facebook and Instagram, I had over 650 comments. And it was amazing to hear the, and read the stories that people shared about how they got into biking, often like you with watching one of those videos and buying their first bike and then their second. And back then the Saska was the bike to have. That was the all-round mountain bike. And it was. Often, I had three of them. Yeah, you're lucky <laughs> because a lot of kids couldn't even afford it. So they had to go with the lower models like the Avalanche or the Aggressors. But it was really cool to see that feedback from people and to, yeah, to see that. Yeah, and some of your Adidas has been with you for a while too, right? That's right. I've been with Adidas for almost 30 years. Yeah. 
And that's been a great sponsor and a partnership. And now, you know, like as most of you know, they acquired 510 shoes and that's part of their cycling uh, line now. And they have a whole new apparel line too with Adidas 510, other than with their Terex line, which mm -hmm. is the outdoor clothing line, which is also super functional for all kinds of biking activities. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. It is long and loyal sponsors. Yeah, that's incredible. Is Anza still sponsoring you? Because I'd love to get a set of porcupine tires. No? Yeah, I haven't heard. <laughs> I, they haven't returned my phone call in the last yeah. 30 years. Hmm. So I don't know if they're. I wonder if they still out for lunch or what happened there. Probably out riding. That was a cool company. And, you know, the bike industry needs cool companies to bring a lifestyle and an image. And Onza was one of them. And I have one of those white porcupines in my garage mounted am, on a Tayoga disc wheel. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to come steal it. Or is yeah. that has that happened already? No, uh, not yet. Yeah. Knock, knock on wood. Yeah. I've had a break in once. That wasn't fun. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, there's definitely some great products in our industry, some unique brands. I just want to thank you for your time, for talking with us today. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think we talked about a lot of cool stuff and it's just cool to, you know, to chat about all this and the industry and to get more people into biking. And I mean, I mentioned it already. I think teaching etiquette is a big thing to make sure everybody on the trails get along because the trails get more and more crowded and we want to make sure everybody can enjoy them. And that yeah. takes cooperation and understanding and respecting the other trail users yep yeah and even you know experienced riders setting the example for new riders that don't know how to act on trails certainly is incredibly important that um, is yeah that's the yeah. best lead, lead by example yep well awesome thanks a ton huge fan definitely looking forward to what you have coming down the pipeline and the release of your new project you can find out all about Hans and stuff at hansray.com, wheelsforlife.org, Instagram, YouTube. All that. All Facebook. my old and new yeah. videos are on YouTube. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks again. And, Thank and you, Jan. wish yeah, you the I best for 2022. All right. Say hi to the rest of the crew, Heather and co. And we'll see you out there, hopefully at a trade show one of these days. One of these days, yes. Yeah. Okay. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Mm -hmm.